Hello, hello, everybody. It's Dimity McDowell here with your Another Mother Runner podcast. You are used to hearing my friend and sister from Another Mother Runner, uh, Sarah Bowen Shea, do the intro on this podcast. But today we're doing a special episode that I've been meaning to do for a while. And Sarah gracefully stepped aside since this area, um, su- subject, should I should say it makes me nervous even just saying it, but mental health. Um, is something that I have kind of been the default <laughs> AMR person in. Um, and joining me, who is also a, uh, an expert, I'm putting it in air quotes, um, is Adrian Martini. So welcome, Adrian. Thank you, Debbie. I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I know, right? I know, it's, it's not expertise that we would want, but I will say that talking about stuff um, does seem to make things a lot better. than. It sure does. Um, yeah, and you, I mean, you wrote a whole book about. Talk a little bit because I don't think many people know. I mean, I think people do know about it, but talk about your book. Okay. So let's see. My daughter is currently 16, so I'm going to start there. Um, We're all fine now with, you know, uh, broad definitions of fine. Um, But when I had her, I pretty much, I had postpartum depression badly enough that I was uh, sent to the psych floor at my local hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee at the time, uh, and got to spend an extra week kind of getting myself back together again. Um, so because the way that I process stuff is by writing about it and I can't help, but, um, I don't know, want to get the message out there about what I'm writing about, I, through a series of events, wound up writing a book for uh, a division of Simon & Schuster called Hillbilly Gothic, My Memoir of Madness and Motherhood. Um, It's about crazy families, postpartum depression, uh, but funny, you know, in that way (laughs) that I am funny. Um, Exactly, in the way that you have to be able to laugh at yourself. You you do. Yeah, yeah. And I do have to say that spending some time on a psych floor is not something that I, uh, A, ever thought I'd be doing, uh, B, ever want to do again, but C, was exactly the right thing for me at that time. Sure, sure. Well, and I've read it. I mean, I read it, I think, prior to you coming on to um, Another Mother Runner as a columnist, as a regular oh, columnist. Great. And I um, I remember really liking it. Now, oh, it's Hillbilly Elegy, is that? Because I'm reading J.D. Right. book right yes. now. Yes, Hillbilly oh. Elegy is different. <laughs> it is, it is. But, I, you know, it's got the same hillbilliness yeah. to it. Um, See, I think that he ripped me off. But well, I, I gotta say, I mean, I think it's a good book. I mean, I think your oh, book is amazing book. too. Yeah. But I also... I do feel like, um, I think it's talk. I mean, I think part of the appeal is that it's talking about a culture that all of us are, if we don't live in it, if you weren't raised in the South um, or in that part of the right. Appalachian. Yeah, the Appalachian. Yeah. yeah um, it is fascinating, right? Because yeah. um, you want to peek in. And so that's what's kind of lovely about that book. And and same, I think the same thing goes for mental health. I mean, I don't want to, you know, be like, oh yeah, come on and see how deep and dark my head can get. But, you know, talking about it and, and, um, and realizing that somebody like you, who, you know, seems to, on the, on the surface, have it all together, you know, right. you're a great writer, you're, you know, you work for a college um, publication, you used to be a professor. I mean, you've got, you know, a great sense of humor, great family, all these things, um, and yet it can still crumble. Yeah. Right. Oh, easily. Yeah. Easily crumble. 
Yeah. Um, but the kind of the phrase that I like is don't compare your insides to somebody else's outsides. That's um, a really uh, good perspective. Yeah, because you'd never know what people have gone through. Um, yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. And I mean, I think that that's sometimes hard for, you know, when I really struggled and um, I wrote about it in Tales from Another Mother Runner. I mean, I was, I could not get suicidal thoughts out of my head. One yep. I just, I couldn't. Like yep. I, I didn't ask for help, which I know it's, it's so hard. It's such a catch 22 because. Well, yeah. it's a catch 22, but it's also one of those. Well, why didn't you ask for help? It's like, because I didn't even know what to ask for. Yes. Well, yes. And then I also had this really weird, you know, I don't want, I just, it was so scary. I didn't yeah. want to let my husband in. I didn't want to let my friends in. And I was so tired and so just depleted that I, you know, I mean, I, I did call my mom at one point, but that was about as much as I could muster, you know? Right. right. Um, but what's hard is that in, in part of the shame that comes with it is, you know, similarly, like if you looked at my resume, if you looked at what I set out, you know, to do with my life, like I've, I've done that. I, you know, right. I, I have healthy right. kids. I have, I own a house. I have a dog. I have a husband who loves me most days. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, every, you know, so, I mean, it's not like I've, it's not like I have this life full of tragedy and sorrow, you know? And right. so when I look at that and I think, why do you feel so freaking awful, Dimity, when you have everything that, you know, you could ever have dreamed of, Oh, I mean, that, that part is just, I mean, it's shame, I guess. It's embarrassment. It's all the stuff that you want to, you rationally know is normal, but it's, it's so hard to, um, I don't know, to, to make, to make, to justify it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the phrase that, you know, mental illness lies. Um, Yeah. As in like, it's telling you things like, oh, you're worthless. You're horrible. Why are you even bothering to try to get out of bed? When, you know, it's just your brain, your own brain is lying to you. Like the calls are coming from inside the house, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't find the way back out again. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. It's like those telephones in the bathroom. Why do you even have them? I don't want calls I don't know. inside the house. I don't know, right? <laughs> what am I supposed to, as I'm sitting here, I'm going to ring up somebody I know and say, hey, guess what I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so with all this, we talked a little bit about our background, but- right. What is hard, um, even harder for me some days, is that you know that depression and anxiety and all that stuff has genetic yep. roots in it, right? Yeah, um, it sure does. And, especially the mom to daughter thing, I think. Yes, yes. And yeah. so we both have uh, teenage daughters who yep. are, you know, um, we want, obviously, I want nothing more. And I don't want to say be happy. I don't want to say I want nothing more for Amelia than to be happy, right? Because right. I think that that's that's pressure. I want her to live the life that she wants. Yep. Um, but a part of me, God, if I could somehow just come through with a big, you know, um, like swashbuckling sword or whatever, and just like, <laughs> you know, like I can see it in the jungle, like just cut right. through the path of, you know, just make it clear it for her. So she never has to do this. Um, but I think that's a little unrealistic. A, a little bit. Yeah. 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 All right. Thanks for the reality check. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, um, so what we are going to do today is we're going to talk to Kate Fagan, who is the author of What Made Maddie Run, Um, and she is just a really insightful person. She's not a mother herself, but she spent a lot of time 
going through the story of Ma Madison Holleran, who is a cross-country runner at UPenn, who unfortunately uh, committed suicide after her first semester. Mm -hmm. So we'll dig into that in a minute. Um, so honestly, stay with us. It's, it's a good, good show, and um, there's a lot to be learned. Kate Fagan is a columnist and writer for ESPNW, ESPN.com, and ESPN the Magazine. She's also a regular panelist on ESPN's Around the Horn and can be seen on Outside the Lines, First Take, and His and Hers. Previously, Fagan spent three seasons covering the 76ers for the, for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She's the author of her memoir, The Reappearing Act, and is co-host of the ESPN podcast, Free Cookies. She lives in Brooklyn with her partner, Catherine Budig, and their two dogs. Kate, we are so excited to have you here to talk about um, some tough topics, but important ones. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of what made Maddie run, how it began, and how you began reporting it? Yeah, well, it first began as an article for ESPN, both for ESPNW and ESPN the magazine, that we did, well, at this point, it was probably about two, three years ago. And it was really a collaboration. I had lived in Philly for a number of years. I played college sports. My sister had run cross-country and track and field at an Ivy League school. So when Maddie died, I remember the headlines that they after. And so it was a story that I had my eye on. And then also uh, our, at the time, brand new editor in CW, um, Allison Overholt, had been working at 17 and Madison had uh, Instagrammed a picture of a 17 pull quote. And so I think the first meeting that Allie and I ever had, it was, it was clear that this was a story that we both felt was a, a really, really impactful one that we could do in a smart way. So there are so many different layers to the story, but first, why don't we take a minute and kind of talk about Maddie as a person? Yeah. Um, can you tell us some more about her? Yeah, so, so Madison Hongren was a young woman who grew up in Allendale, New Jersey, which is about an hour outside of Manhattan. And kind of a typical New Jersey suburb town. Uh, she was a soccer player and she ran track and cross country to stay in, to stay in shape for soccer. Initially, she had my brothers and sisters, and you know, her, her parents were still together, so it was a really strong family base as well. And she ended up deciding to run track and field and cross country in college instead of play soccer because, in many ways, because she got recruited to the Ivy League, and, and she had this perception of the Ivy League as you know vaunted institutions and really a, a place that a lot of people would be really really proud of her if she made it that far. Mm -hmm. So she ended up going, she ended up going to Penn and things, you know, that transition to college was really tough for her. She was struggling. She didn't know if she should continue playing track and field or running. And she was also dealing with, a, you know, an intense level of anxiety, depression that morphed into suicidal thoughts. And she, when she went back for her second semester during her freshman year at Penn, she took her own life in downtown Philadelphia. And, you know, it was kind of in the months and years afterward trying to re reconstruct what happened that I really learned a lot about so many different factors that were at play with like our kids today. And, and it just, it got to a point where it felt like Maddie was very representative of what's happening with a lot of young people. Right. 
Definitely, definitely. And that's that's definitely why we wanted to have you on as I read this um, as a as a, a parent of a sophomore who is uh, a, a good volleyball player. And it li literally like put the fear of God into me um, because she wants yeah. to play in college. And I just am like, and, and you interspersing your, you know, high or your college experience with basketball at the University of Colorado and Maddie feeling so overwhelmed. And I'm just like, wow, this, this is just a totally different side of sports that we don't really see very much or talk about. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was, that was a really important energy for, for me to convey and for even for experience to make sure we conveyed in the book. Be, and, and the energy, right, it's, it's not supposed to be one or even just the story that we're trying to tell. It's not supposed to be fully 100%, you know, this is the dark side of college sports. Really, what we saw before even putting out this book was that there wasn't a ton about college sports that parents of kids who are striving to get a scholarship or to play college sports and those kids themselves, there really wasn't even a ton of information out there or stories out there that they could even read and say, maybe I need to, before I make certain decisions, even understand what it might be like to go and play college sports at a really high level. Because, and I remember this growing up, all I saw and all I thought about was, how cool will people think I am? How amazing of an achievement is this? It's going to be awesome. You know, it's like the big man on campus. You're going to be celebrated. It's going to be fun. It's going to be dynamic. It's going to be the best four years of your life. And we really wanted with this book to tell a spectrum of story. One being, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids who want to go play in college, that first couple of years is really tricky for them. And it's not one out of 50. It's a lot of kids. And we don't want to, we didn't want to scare kids away from wanting to play college sports, but we also don't want them to show up the first day of practice and think this is going to be amazing and easy and it's going to be all, you know, sunshine and unicorns because that is very, very few of kids' experiences when they get to that level. Right. Well, right. well and just talk a little bit about what happened to you yeah. or your feeling, uh, your, your situation when you were playing for, for the Buffaloes. <laughs> yes, for the Colorado Buffaloes. Thank you for putting the proper amount of respect on that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so in, in the book, you know, I do intersperse with a little bit of my experience when I transitioned from high school to college. And I really struggled. That first freshman year, it got to the point that I was just really panicky. Every practice, it was like, it, even if I was one minute removed from practice, all I could think was that I was 22 hours until the next one. It, it felt like there was no reprieve from my mind spinning through what pra how hard practices were. And because they are, they're physically draining. I, I, you know, quick, quick detour here is like almost every college athlete I know, especially ones who want to play professionally, say that they've never done harder training than they did in college. And so it is a place where physically you're really, really challenged and you're not necessarily emotionally developed to the point that you might be when you step into your pro career. So you're also really challenged emotionally and being away from home. And that was a lot of what I was going through was I can't do this anymore. Like why the stress I was feeling constantly, my mind constantly turning, like, am I, am I not strong enough to do this? I mean, it wasn't just the running or the sprint. It was also like, who am I without this if I don't do this, but I can't not do this, but what does it say about me if I don't do this? I was wrapped up in this whole swirl and I tried to quit the team. Um, my coach, you know, for me, it was thankfully that she didn't let me quit because 
I wasn't also dealing with a kind of clinical depression. I wasn't also dealing with a hereditary issue with, you know, any sort of mental health issues. So for me, it was really focused on this anxiety and sport. And I, um, I didn't quit the team and my coach changed how she was coaching me and things changed for me a little bit. And I kind of got through that really messy period to a point where I was very thankful. I continued to play college sports. I consider it the hardest thing I've ever done. I wouldn't want to do it again, but I'm really glad that I stuck it out. And that's obviously not the case for everybody. And so I try to tell that story in, in complement with Maddie's story, where a lot of it is similar, but then you've also got the added factor of depression running in her family and her, you know, and her dealing with suicidal thoughts before she goes back for second semester. So we try to weave those two stories in to, so that kids and parents who are reading this, like, you know, maybe they see some, you know, piece of themselves or their, or their kid in either one of these stories that can help them start to talk about things and start to think about, you know, how they might want to approach sports in a different way or approach even the college sports experience with maybe eyes a little bit wider open than they might have if they hadn't read the book. Right. Um, And it seems like a lot of, uh, in the book, you talked a lot about how Maddie kind of wanted to portray herself on social media, which a lot of teenagers and high schoolers and college students um, really want to show the world that they're doing just fine. Thanks. Even though the reality might be something completely different. Uh, and I think that's something that I, I'm not going to assume that I know how old you are, Kate, but I'm assuming that <laughs> that was not a problem you had to deal with while you were in college. Um, how do you feel that that changes things or does it? I think that the, 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 the superficial part there of like our kids now having Snapchat and Instagram as ways where they're portraying maybe a different part of themselves or a different life than they're actually living concerns me to some degree. But as I try to write in the book, I don't think it's dramatically different from what we've always done as a human race. You know, perhaps it's more frequent that you're absorbing everybody's curated self, as I think we've talked a lot about over the last few years. So that part doesn't concern me as much as how technology as a whole is fundamentally changing the minds of not just our young people, I I see it in myself as well. Like, you know, a kind of life optimization that I think we can all participate in where, you know, you have, you have an overwhelming amount of choices for everything that you're going to do in your life and it can be paralyzing. Like we used to just feel that way about going to school at the TV if you're lucky enough to like go to a Best Buy and you're like, Oh my God. Right. Like, right. You know, what they call it, <laughs> Too analysis many paralyzation. Yeah. yeah. And I think now you can have that about what coffee shop you go to when you're on the road somewhere, you know? And so, it, so it's like fundamental changes like that, like that technology is changing how kids are perceiving themselves and how kids are behaving and how kids are much less likely to get driver's license and have sex for the first time because they're not out there testing the boundaries of freedom and they don't have the kind of free range nature that we had maybe 25 years ago and certainly even before that. So a lot of that changing coping mechanisms. And so it, right. It's not like, Oh man, Instagram's the worst. Uh, it's more that this, this, if the, if the ultimate hope is that our kids are going to college, um, if they're lucky enough to go to college and they have coping mechanisms to deal with failure and struggles 
technology is one small reason why I think so many kids have fewer coping skills and then failure and problems when they get to college, certainly like ones that, that Maddie hit, feel overwhelming to them, like they can't deal with them. Right. Totally. Well, one of the things you um, spoke to, again, my daughter, who was a freshman last year, um, they one of their final English project was um, uh, arguing in front of the school board um, for a book that they shot, thought should be included in the curriculum. And um, my daughter and her little posse picked um, what made <laughs> Maddie run. And uh, all right. I know it was great. It was great. And uh, and I went and watched. I was the only parent. <laughs> like, I got to see this one. Um, but but here's the thing. Um, so one of the slides that drives me crazy, and I bring it to Amelia's attention a lot, is so they made this slide, and it was like, you know, all these studies about how, you know, when they are on Instagram or scrolling, you know, for an hour, their mood goes down by X percent, and and this and that, and they, and I think they understand that, like, rationally, but then they don't stop, right? And I'm like, Amelia, stop scrolling. Like, you're not, nothing's going to get, it's going to come out of it. You've been on it for 45 minutes, you know? Like, what do you think is a good way to kind of connect those dots, like, if you're on your phone for too long, you're probably going to start feeling crappy about yourself. Like, do you have any yeah. parental advice from that or advice for parents? Yeah. I totally see, I do this myself, right? Like I can, I can, I can obviously say like, Oh, like, you know, high school kids, they can't get off their phone. I endlessly scroll on Instagram. Yeah. And, so do I, I mean, we all do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so when I'm talking to like kids too, I try to make sure that I'm not like, this is your problem. One, because we created this technology mm-hmm. and it's fundamentally addicting. So it's like, are we shocked that, you know, that there's an addictive quality to it when it's actually built into the tech- technological design. But to your larger question, I mean, the only, the, the only actual advice I have is that when, you, when anyone's saying like, don't do that, it's never going to work unless it's this instead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, like, so yeah. I get, for me, it's like, if I'm home alone and like, you know, my partner is gone for the weekend and I don't have plans, I'm probably far more likely to just sit there and scroll because like, I don't have another creative thing that I'm scheduled to do. And so the only time I see it work is it's like, Hey, why don't you get off your phone and we'll go do this instead? Cause otherwise, I, I mean, that's kind of how it works for me. I'm like, I need to work on this other thing instead. So anyway, like, it can't just be stopped doing it. It has to be like a replacement for something with something more stimulating, which is a hard thing, is a hard thing to build in because not a lot is more stimulating than that, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's stimulating in a very superficial way, but it's really hard to put something else in front of someone that like lights up their brain the same way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For Maybe sure. you could teach her to knit and she can do that <laughs> I don't know. Right. You're like, hey, you could knit, you could paint. And I've got watercolor. This is why we have coloring books now for all ages. Yes. <laughs> well, and I always say, you know, let's, I mean, my default is let's go for a run, which is like the last <laughs> you want to do, right? You know, like that's always right. my mood booster, right? When I right. need So, um, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, go oh, ahead. Go ahead, Adrian. I was just going to go back to the kind of transition to college. Um, and it, it, I teach, uh, I taught at a college for the last 10 years. I'm at one of the SUNY schools in New York. Um, and we work on that first year, especially, especially the first six weeks of a new student coming on campus, because regardless of whether or not they play sports, it's a rough transition. Um, and for most students, not all students. 
Um, and you're also dealing with suicide being among the top causes of death for for kids 10 to about you know 24, 25. Um, so we, we pay a lot of attention to that as well, but especially when you start getting into students who are used to being highly driven and highly successful, um, college is hard, college sports are hard. Suddenly you're not the biggest fish on the team. You're now mm-hmm. you know, on a team with 50 really big fish, right? So you kind of have to readjust your expectations. Um, so how, uh, how do you think high-performing high school athletes um, can kind of how parents can help them through readjusting or is it something that a parent can help with? Well, I don't, this is the kind of thing where it would, it would help me so much if I had like hands-on practical experience. Like I don't have kids yet. We want to right. have kids. Well, I can I ship you a 16 year old. So 16 is a little past where I want to okay. be. Seven, I feel like they're, they're yeah. starting to really remember things, and that's when I can be very helpful. But, um, no, I mean, I think um, it's, you know, it's actually, you know what? I just lost. What, tell, remind me of the question again. Okay. You can edit this well, out. It's a great, uh, well, I'm very busy question. thinking about my future kid. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And what sport will they play? Um, yeah. So it, it's kind of about reconciling the the transition from being oh, yeah. Yeah. really, um, you know, highly driven, highly successful on your high school campus and suddenly having to make the transition to college where you're yeah. away from home, you're right. not the biggest fish on campus anymore. Yeah. And the class well, is so just... I, I think, yeah, the number one, like, if, if, if parents out there are, are listening, like, the, the easiest possible thing you can do if your kid now is like already 16 and you're now worried, like, could they be one of these kids who struggle when they transition to college is simply at least introducing the messaging that college is not just, you know, the place where you redefine yourself and it's magical and it's the best four years of your life. So I know you mentioned that like you worked at a SUNY school and maybe on that, on the college end of things, I think professors and administrators have long seen that kids are going to struggle in this transition and so they have the infrastructure on that end but we're not necessarily changing the back end of like the community of people who are shipping the the kid off to college right the kid doesn't yet know that this is just going to be magic exactly so so that on that end of things if it's like if you haven't yet had the conversation with your kid that like like let's you could be one of those people who would just and this is amazing and perfect, but like, if you're not, and if you're struggling, that's okay. And chances are really good that if you looked around, a lot of people aren't yet talking about how they're struggling too, but trust me, like, they're probably thinking a lot of the same things that you are. And then, I mean, the fundamental biggest thing, but I think if your kid's already 16, it's going to be a lot harder, is that, like, you're just going to want them to have failed a a number of times already. Yeah, Yeah, And. And, you know, what I don't know, sometimes I see now, like, even some organizations that I've I've communicated with, like USA Basketball, like, they know the kids they're getting now in the, you know, in, like, the 16 and under team that maybe goes to the World Championships, they're not, they don't have the same coping skills. And a lot of it is, you know, as I talk about in the book, those kids didn't grow up on the street playing pickup basketball or playing anything. And so USA Basketball is trying to reintroduce 
like pickup and free play where they, they bring in kids and they just, and, and the kids themselves have to organize the game and set up the rules. And are they playing to 11? Are they playing to 15? Are they twos? Are they threes? What are we calling? Like if I'm looking at the basketball example, kids don't have that skill anymore. And so, you know, and I, and I know, like I write about that in the book and I think it's hopefully most parents now, you know, have read free range kids and they kind of understand this, but you know, if your kid's 16 and you're like, I've never allowed them to fail, like, you know, I don't know that you can retroactively reintroduce that. You can right. really <laughs> that maybe that's something that you're going to have to watch out for. You're going right. to have to bring them out to the wilderness for this weekend and leave right. them there at like stat, right? Yeah, right. You, know? <laughs> you need yeah. a three-day crash course on <laughs> right. mechanisms. Yeah. Next time they go up for a layup, just knock them down. Just yeah. Knock them down. <laughs> that's totally what we mean. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other the other book that comes up that um, I, I'm sure you've heard about, Kate, is How to Raise an Adult. Have you heard of that book? If not, no, I haven't read that one. Get, no. Well, get it on your shelf before you have a child. Um, but it's written by the um, freshman, the former freshman dean um, at Stanford and um, super insightful and helpful as far as I mean, I think, you know, we're kind of known as a helicopter generation. And um, as we all know, rationally, we're not doing our kids any favors. It's just hard to back off when you don't see everyone else backing off. Right. So. Um, so yeah. yeah, I don't know how things are in Col- in Colorado. I know one of you is in Colorado. Yeah, um, that's Tim. Yeah, but on the East Coast, I don't know if you guys have this, but I was like in Princeton, New Jersey, and not even necessarily about Princeton University, just the high schools there, and all the parents had apps where they got instantly notified, right? If their kid of a kid's test score, yeah. and like, and every parent that I talked to individually was like this is the worst. I want to delete it, but I'm not deleting it. And if, if every, unless every other parent deletes it. Right. And you're like, yeah, I know nobody's doing that. Nobody's deleting right. the app. And I'm like, this is awful. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, we have that. I, I didn't download the app because no, it's for it's, you. It's, uh, well, no, it's more because I deal with college students all the time. And I'm like, you guys need to, you know, you can figure this out. You don't yeah. need involved. So, well, and it's true. Yeah. Just, I mean, stuff like, you know, I mean, I, you know, go, I go to middle school. I also have a seventh grader and I go there and, you know, here is our Google classroom here. Here's the link. Um, I'm going to send you a newsletter every week about what's going on in our class. I'm like, oh my gosh, my mom got care. <laughs> a, a, a report card in the envelope, you know, in the mail, you know, which I tried to hide sometimes at the end of a semester. Like it, there was just not, and I, I'm all for communication, especially if a kid is you know, struggling and mentally struggling for sure, but it just feels so um, just overwhelming from, 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 I think, both both places of you. The teachers have to keep up with all the parents, and then parents, I'm like, oh, if I'm not, you know, making sure that Ben knows his, you know, United States history around the dinner table, like, I'm like, no, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm just yeah. not, you know, like, yeah. that's his job. That's his job. Yep. Yeah. Well, my thing is, I already did this class. I don't need to yeah. do it again. <laughs> I don't remember anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, one of the things, again, just more from a personal experience, um, Kate, but it's just was just so heartbreaking to see all the choices that not necessarily were made consciously, but unconsciously. Like, so Maddie got a, you know, a uh, um, subscription, a scholarship to <laughs> play soccer for Lehigh, right? And that was her love, that was the sport that she loved the most, but she picked Penn over that because of prestige like that broke my heart um Mm -hmm. it broke my heart the dad not you know like sending these messages and her dad like doing his best and like you know oh we should just drive down let's go check out a different school we don't have to go back to Penn but yet they go back to Penn like was that hard to 
document as a, first of all, to hear from her parents and then also document just personally? Yeah, it, it was the most challenging part for me, right? And so separate than the actual challenge of the people who loved Maddie, both her friends who I got to know pretty well throughout this process and, and her family. The challenging part was simply that you recognize that in, in our culture, when it comes to suicide, we kind of lean toward assuming it was inevitable because the second that you acknowledge that it wasn't inevitable, then you ask yourself the question of like, well, then what, what right. caused it, right? And what, what could I have done? Then what, yeah. And so, but, but you don't want to say that it's inevitable because we've, we've got, in our culture, we've got rising rates of anxiety and depression and suicidal thought. And suicide among our young people, and are like, if we're like, oh, this is inevitable. It's not inevitable, and I, and I don't think the outcome of Maddie's story was inevitable. But you couldn't. But I, at the same time, I could never pinpoint one thing. I could, and I try to in the book. I try to say, look, these are all pieces of it, and the, I don't. I can't even tell you what percentage of contributes to the outcome of Maddie's story, right? Like social media, technology how that might have changed Maddie's perception of herself and her perception of her experience. Certainly mental health running in her family is a piece of the story. Certainly our culture and how it's changing with, you know, coping mechanism and coping skills and how, how kids are arriving in college prepared for these challenges. That's a piece of the story. Like the, her, her communication to me being predominantly digital with her friends and the overuse of emojis is a small piece of her story because she was not, she was not struggling to tell people that things weren't going well. She just was doing it digitally one. So there, it's just hard to really transmit emotion that way. And mm -hmm. then she was punctuating most of her text messages with emojis, which if I'm a friend and I get one, I'm like, Oh, she's not doing well at pen. She thinks she might want to leave monkey covering eyes. Like <laughs> that kind of signals to me that everything's, like everything she might not be doing well but she's doing well enough to have put that in there for me to say it's okay generally speaking so sure. and, and so anyway so like it that was so heartbreaking was seeing maybe like 60 different things and if any one of them had changed some small degree maybe madison would still be here today you know and that and that's just that's of course so hard to swallow um rather than saying to yourself well it was inevitable right yeah. you know because yeah. i just don't believe that right maybe we need like an existential despair emoji that would, uh, <laughs> right i mean the, the <laughs> thing is crazy to me because like nobody sitting across from you can do a monkey covering eye right like, <laughs> right you That's can't that. you can't you, you can't say what madison said i, I hate it at penn and i want to transfer and then a monkey covering eyes, like if you're sitting across from someone, there's a follow-up question to that statement. Right. And right. there weren't when, you, when she transmitted it digitally. So, you know, a small piece of it, but one that I, I find really important to share because I think so many, all of us, but so many kids now lean so hard into communicating digitally and you think you're getting something out of it, but you're not. Right. Right. So it texts uh, are flat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> when you're traveling around the country doing talks um, and through your work with with uh, or at ESPN do you see a lot of other Maddies out there yes yeah I would say every I've probably spoken to maybe 20 division one schools over the last athletic departments over the last like 
year or two, and there's always three to four um, student athletes, and sometimes just students who are like you, who you wrote about in the book. Like that's me, right? Um, and or it's the, just the overlap that they feel with what Maddie was going through. They just relate on a deep level, and. Mm-hmm. And even ones who maybe don't don't go so far as to say, you know, I I see myself or like the the overlap between Maddie and I is just so extreme. There's just so many. There's always a handful in addition who are just struggling deeply with the with the college and maybe also the student athlete experience and who they want to be and whether sports are a part of it. And there's a sort of existential crisis happening, even if luckily, thankfully for them, I don't think it's also coinciding with, you know, their, their, their brain being in a place where where suicidal thought is on their mind. But I've been, I've been so surprised by how almost every athletic department I, I walk into, like there's just, and of course the kids who are really enjoying it aren't coming up necessarily to talk to me, but I just, I'm always talking to a number of kids who are really struggling on a deep level with, with sports and who they are and whether it's something that they should be doing with this commitment level. Cause it's an intense commitment level. And sometimes I think they can feel not seen and they can feel like whatever passion they might have inside of them is being is being gobbled up by these this huge commitment and people don't really see them for who they are. There's a lot of that right. happening out there. Right. And do you do you feel like the tide is shifting at all in college sports? Or I mean, I mean, I know you're chipping away at it slowly, but it's a big job. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's more honesty that I've seen over the last couple of years. Um, I, I'm not uh, naive enough to think that. I'm right now that college football is in a place to even like show up to anything that has to do with mental health. I mean, right. almost every school I go to, there's a football program. Like if the football team is there, they sit in the back and they're a pain in the ass. Right. So, like, <laughs> yeah. And that's just because of the cult. Like that, that doesn't, that doesn't even make me believe that the student athletes on that team, that there might not be a couple of them who wish they could participate in it in a different way. But the culture of college football in general says that they have to behave as if they're above it um but so anyway so to your larger question i think i'm seeing the infrastructure change in in that more programs want to bring in whether a dedicated clinician to help their student athletes or participating and partnering in a better way with the on-campus counseling centers like you're seeing you're seeing this in a way that you like three years ago i would have never seen i'm seeing student athletes hopefully now the way they're communicating with me is like with more honesty about what the experience is like for them. Mm-hmm. So I think all of that is like a really good step forward. I just have a fundamental struggle with how athletic departments like exist on college campuses. They're siloed. They're like, they can often operate like cults. Like a lot of that environment, I don't think is the healthiest. Right. Um, you know, and that's separate from Maddie's story in particular you know, it's just more of like, how do we make this a healthier environment where this is truly an extracurricular activity for our kids while they go to school, as opposed to a big business machine that they are, most of our young women are gobbled up in for actual 
sports and dollars that they're not necessarily a part of. So, but that's probably a separate conversation. It is, it is, but it's so hard. I, I, I like that you bring it up because what's so hard is what draws, I think, girls and women in particular to sports is the, is the teamwork, right? And the teammates yeah. and, and, your, and your tribe that kind of you, you just make and you have so much fun. I mean, that's the memories that I have of sports. It's not necessarily the competitions and that kind of thing. It is the, it is the relationships, but I think that fundamentally changes when it becomes you know, even, I mean, even a sport like, you know, like field hockey or volleyball or something like that, that's not a huge moneymaker or doesn't make any money, but it's still got this like edge of competition on it. It's got this edge of business, this edge of like, you know, we have to, you know, we're, we're representing now instead of just playing for our, our teammates and ourselves. Right. Yeah. I think, um, if, even if I look at Maddie, um, in the world of let's say pen track and field, and it, it could be, it could really be any, you mentioned a field hockey team, track and field, any one of those sports that aren't the big business sports where a percentage of kids are, are thinking that they might go pro like men's basketball, football. Uh, you've got a fundamental mismatch between the goals of the student athlete when they walk onto that campus and the goals of the coach, right? Because field hockey in college, right? Like, like you said, if I'm a field hockey star in high school and I go to even a division one program, I'm like, look, I want to work hard. I want to develop a great relationship with my teammates. I certainly want to push myself, but I'm also in college. And it's like the scholarship is this reward for this work you've put in over the course of your life to that point. You, you know, you want to enjoy this college experience and yet you get there and you've got a coach who's, even though they shouldn't be right, making $120,000. <laughs> and if they, if they win and lose, that's important to them. And there's this fundamental mismatch between the goals of that athlete and the goals of that coach. And that, who's going to bend in that circumstance? I mean, in Maddie's experience, again, this is not in any way, like this is the, why the outcome of Maddie's story is tragic. It's simply that, you know, the, the, the will of the athlete is going to bend in that college right. experience. They've, they have to change how they see their sport and how they're going to engage with it, not the coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Um, oh, Go I ahead. was going to say that um, going back to the whole teammate aspect, um, there's a, a point in the book where you talk about, you're, you're talking about mental health with the student advisory, athlete advisory committee of the University of Oregon. Uh, mm -hmm. And one of the questions was, uh, how can we think differently as athletes? Because from the first day we step on campus, we're taught that champions never quit and perseverance is what makes greatness. Um, and I'm worried that a teammate might really be hurting and all I see is weakness. So how, how do students, student athletes and athletic departments kind of cope with that dichotomy, which is, you know, the whole champions never quit attitude versus, you know, yeah. sometimes humans need to step away from something that's yeah. hurting them. Well, th this is, um, it, there's, no, there's no line that you can really point to and say, this is how you know. Right. Um, and that's why it's so hard. I think it becomes extremely tricky in college sports because as I mentioned earlier, um, there are really, every athlete I've talked to, there is no place where they, where they are challenged physically like they are in college sports. Like even if you look at, and I'm sure you guys do through the work that you do, what a really healthy training routine actually looks like, right? Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it now, I'm like, I should be taking two days off a week. You know, you right. should be 
doing one day where you're doing a, like a resting recovery where you're doing a kind of yoga. So, and then you look at a college athlete's training schedule and it's absurd. I mean, you're talking year round where if you get that one day off a week, you're really lucky. And the other six days are so intense that it, your body's kind of in this like broken down state the whole time. And so it applies to the question that you asked, because I think even kids who are strong and me mentally and maybe do have learned some coping mechanisms will be tested to, a, to an extreme degree during college sports. And so this question of quitting to me on the college level is really important because what we're putting our kids through is so extreme compared to really even a professional athlete. They just train so much smarter right. than we do at the college level. Um, but, you know, that fundamental question, like the only way to answer it is for, a, 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 for you to raise a young athlete and a young person who knows themselves to some degree and can say and can answer the question for themselves of, am I, is, am I, if I step away from this drill or if I take, uh, take a, a day off, is that better for me in the long run? Or is this a pattern of, you know, quote unquote laziness that I have introduced into my life? And like, that's nothing that anyone can answer except themselves. And the curious thing about it is that it, it's hard to raise someone who really knows that because it goes right. hand in hand with coping skills and all of that. So, you know, it's just, Again, I know I'm kind of talking in circles here, but that's when it comes in that we need college coaches and we need administrators who are at least cognizant and paying attention to some of these issues so they're not just doing that generational thing of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're going to be fine. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, so and not just. Did answer. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's not just reacting and then going back to status quo. And I mean, I think that that's what happens so much with with everything, right? Mm -hmm. With, with any suicide, especially, I feel like, and I don't, I don't know, I don't remember what's kind of what Maddie's death left in the wake of, of UPenn. But I mean, I just feel like, you know, like when, when it happens with a celebrity, you know, it like we all get really, really sensitive to it for a couple of weeks and then, you know, and then it's done again, you know, and um, it's, it's kind of frustrating to watch sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I know that I probably know the answer to this, and this is not a rhetorical question, but do you see <laughs> any kind of mental health conversation happening in mainstream sports, Kate? I mean, with your work with ESPN or anything, or is that just way down the line, you think? Oh, no, it's, it's the last year. I don't know if either of you were NBA fans or if you pay attention to that world. Um, not so much. Not so much. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. And because maybe the don't pay attention either, but maybe they do. And um, no, it's really changed. I mean, the NBA over the last year, I think it was, it was about four NBA players, two of them all-stars, talked about, one talked about this intense anxiety attack he had during the game and he had to leave the bench. Um, and then another one talked about the depression that he has. And, you, and the NBA and like the NBA Players Association, they've like developed this, they're trying to develop this mental health initiative. And so, I mean, some of that work, like NBA all-stars, saying that they've had to leave the bench for an anxiety attack. I mean, the trickle-down effect to kids is, is something that actually happens. You right. know, you step on the high school or college kids, and they're like, well, Kevin Love said he had an anxiety attack. You know, so maybe this thing that I'm feeling doesn't make me, doesn't alienate me from everybody. Like, maybe it is something that more people are dealing with, because that's all we want our kids to understand is that 
if you're, you know, if you have whatever, whatever struggle you're having, like chances are pretty good. You know, someone on your team, someone around you has felt something like that, or maybe the coach himself. And we just want kids to be able to like raise that question and kind of peer around and say, is this something you felt too? Because once they feel that, and there's that, you know, that teamwork again, where you feel included in the group and not ostracized, like a lot of kids, you know, except for that, that outlier kid who might really be dealing with, with a kind of suicidal thought and a depression, a lot of that just enjoying who they are in life and sports, you're going to, you're going to fix so much of it if, if you're just having that conversation with them. So there's been huge changes in that mainstream sports world over the last year. That's great to hear. Yeah, That's great. great to hear. Yeah. Uh, you want to wrap it up? Uh, uh, gosh, Adrian with the last question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'm like a Maddie. I'm like, I have a lot going on in my head right now. Lots right. Of no, I, I understand. Um, so I guess it, one of the things about writing this book and talking about your own experiences with college sports uh, and talking about Maddie is that you're going to have a lot of people sharing their stories with you as well. And how do you kind of, is it, is that challenging to have all of those tough stories coming at you or are you finding your way through it? The, what I've found, because, I, you know, my dad was really worried at one point when I was working on the book because he felt like I just spent so much time immersed in a story that has the, that has a kind of darkness in it. Right. Um, and like you said, I mean, I do, I do very frequently get, long emails from students and student athletes who want to share what has happened to them and like what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And I think the natural thing to think is that this would, it would bring me down, but it, that's not what I've found. I've found that I've felt like I understand people better. Right. And like before working on this, I, I didn't, I wasn't so consciously aware of how different each one of our brains worked. Mm-hmm. I just kind of assumed everyone's brain worked similarly to mine, you know, in terms of just their overall filtering perception of life, right? Like you wake up and you're like, okay, cool. I'm all, I'm awake today. As opposed to now understanding that there's a million different degrees of how people might wake up and feel about being alive. Right. And instead of, you know, kind of getting lost in the shadows of that, it's just made me feel more in tune with every other human experience that in a way that's made me see the world better. So, you know, hearing people's stories, you know, I, I think I get bogged down in being able to respond appropriately. Like I, there's no way I can reciprocate the kind of energy someone's put into the telling of that story, especially on an email. So that part gets a little tough because you certainly, you know, it's a good quality as a human to hopefully like give back the energy that you get. Right. Right. Um, and I found, I find that I'm very out of whack when it comes to that right now, but I'm, hopeful that whatever I put into the book can kind of pay that debt a little bit, but mm-hmm. for the, to, large, to the larger question, like it, it really has, you know, in some ways really opened up my eyes and, and helped me understand humanity a little bit better, which might sound cheesy, but that's how I feel. Right. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and you've opened up our eyes so much again, Kate, thank you for your time today. Thank you for writing this book. I mean, I, you can ask any, any mother runner uh, who I come into contact with, who especially has a, you know, a kid who might be serious about sports um, or has some, you know, some history of depression. I'm like, have you read What Makes Maddie Run? You got to read it. You got to read it. And both mm. the and the kid, because it's just, I don't know. I, again, I just think it's, um, it's a really, really important addition to, um, 
to the teenage what genre, I guess. I don't know. Right. Canon <laughs> genre. Canon. There you go. Yeah, You're part canon. of a canon. You're part of required a, reading. Yeah. Required reading. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, take care and we will um, uh, be sure to link to the book and, and to her foundation and all that stuff in the, in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you guys. And thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the time. Take oh, care. Thank you. Oh my gosh. So, um, so she is a bundle of wisdom, huh? She sure is. Yeah. Was there anything that resonated particularly with you or anything that you would add to, um, especially the raising the teenagers part? Right. Um, I'm kind of in a different situation because my teenager is kind of not a sports player. Her pressures yeah. come from, oh, you know, different things, but I think it's the same problem. You know, it's the same issue of feeling pressure and not knowing what to do with that pressure. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, and I have to say, I mean, and I'm not, um, I don't want to make a deal about this, but after we recorded this podcast, we recorded this um, in August, right? Or September? I, can't I think it was September. Yeah. September. Okay. Um, but we now we're recording the intro and outro in October and it's running soon. Um, yes. <laughs> is in between um, that and we're talking with Kate and now as we're talking, Unfortunately, two seniors um, at Amelia's school uh, in like suburban Denver killed themselves within 72 hours of each other. Um, yeah. One was a boy uh, and one was a girl. And as far as I know, they are not related um, to, you know, they weren't friends or anything. I don't right. know that much about it. Amelia didn't know them. And, um, you know, I've really <laughs> tried to open up some conversations, but um, mostly I just, you know, they, you know, she's. So, so one happened on the weekend, one happened on a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, we all awoke to an email from the school district um, saying, you know, the second one happened um, and we are opening school today and we want you to come, um, right. but we are having a day of, you know, a free day, basically. Right. You know, we will have counselors available. They had apparently a bunch of therapy dogs there. Um, they've, they had movies and you can go talk to your teachers and you know just just we want they wanted to have community without education that day right right um which I thought was the absolute right thing to do um and um and I you know and then they sent you know the, the school has been I would say nothing less than amazing as far mm -hmm. as reacting to this I mean you know we were we're also the state of um Columbine where everything started so we're kind of right right I forgot yeah. yeah yeah so um hyper alert to any kind of you know, violence, um, you know, from the inside or outside. Right. Um, and, um, and I, so I tried to talk to her a little bit about it. Um, but she just, you know, I didn't know them. I don't know, mom. I don't know. I don't right. know. Okay. Right. That's fine. Same with Ben. And I just finally, I just said, you guys, I just need you to know this and it's going to make me sad just saying this, but like, I need, you need to talk to me if it gets that bad, you know, right. like I need to be, I would just, I just, I just know that I could, I, I just need you to know that I want you to, I would help you no matter what, right. and I would not judge you. And I mean, I just need them to hear that. I hope they hear that. I, you know, but how do you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't. But um, do they know about kind of your. My, no, they, I have not talked to them at all about my essay and a Tales from Another Mother Runner. Um, and I think at some point they'll, they'll read it and I'm happy to talk to them then. Um, you know, it came out in 2015 and I was writing, I think about 
one or two years earlier. So right. you know, about five years has passed. I mean, Amelia reads adult books now and she, you know, she just doesn't want to pick it up. Right. <laughs> no interest right. in anything mother runner. Let's well, yeah. 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 And also your own mom. I mean, what could yeah. she possibly Right. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. So yeah. if it does come up, you know, I, I would be happy to discuss it. Um, and I think like we talked about in the intro, especially as she starts to, you know, she wants to have a family and starts to have kids. I'd really, right. you know, like right. to have that conversation with her because that's when I feel like I went from, okay, I manageable, I can handle, I can manage my depression with exercise right. and sleep and that kind of stuff to, Oh, there's a cliff, and I'm gonna just cartwheel <laughs> yeah. down it and see what yeah. if I can stand on my land on my feet. So, yep, I'm just gonna um, curl up in a little ball. Yeah, yeah. Down. I mean, yeah. you plan on having a similar conversation with your daughter? Um, I think we've been having the conversation all along because <laughs> yeah, um, her in her junior high, the librarian um, got a copy of both of my books, including the you know one about having Maddie. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so that kind of pulled that Band-Aid right off. So yeah. I don't think she, she hasn't read it. She doesn't seem inclined to read it because, of course, what does my mom know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the conversations are out there. And sure. we've had these conversations. And she knows that. Um, so interactions with my mom can get a little fraught because you know, this mental illness came from somewhere and uh, there's a strong maternal element. It's not the only thing, but um, so she knows that it's, it's a potential and that it's something to know about, you know, it's like heart disease. This is why we eat carrots and broccoli and exactly. Exactly. Bringing that to the level that, you know, as you know, I mean, I've had some tough conversations with Sarah Bowen Shea and, you know, she's been nothing but supportive, you know, like this is not, this is, this is not your fault, right? This is yeah. Like, oh yeah. No, the not way at you all. think isn't your fault. No. The way I judge sometimes my fault. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking um, and action are two different things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, but that's, that's, um, so, you know, that idea of just that it's, it is a, it is a flaw in your body as, as we all have IT bands and oh, yeah, we all and have diseases our, and yeah. other flaws that, yeah. you know, and, um, and we can get help for it. And, yep. you know, and if you are willing and, uh, you find the right person, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, good. Well, Adrian, thank you for, um, for being part of this, for being game for, oh, for chatting for about it. Me. And, um, for sharing your story at the beginning of the podcast. Again, that's Hillbilly Gothic, not Hillbilly Elegy. So, nope. Although it is all, Hillbilly Elegy is also very good. It is good. It is good. Yes. But probably don't read them back to back. You no. might be a little. <laughs> you might start, you know, uh, yeah, just don't read them back to back. <laughs> I won't even make a joke. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, take care. Um, many happy miles, everybody. And we will see you all soon.